Hey y'all, welcome back to The Art of a Spoon, movement building through art and activism. I'm your host, cultural organizer, artist, actor, and writer, BK. And today is a really special episode. We're doing our very first crossover interview. This episode will be featured here on our platform and also on The Activist Files, a podcast by the Center for Constitutional Rights, where they feature the stories of people fighting on the front lines for justice including activists, lawyers, and artists. They interview their movement partners, the clients they represent, and people using storytelling to create change. We got the opportunity to sit down with Najib Ben Youssef, who sits on the advisory board for Donkey Saddle Projects and is also the director of advocacy for CCR. The Center for Constitutional Rights works with communities under threat to fight for justice and liberation through litigation, advocacy, and strategic communications. I'm really excited to get into today's show, so let's do just that. Get into the room with the Activist Files and Najib Ben Yusuf of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Hey all, welcome to this very, very special episode of The Artivist Room. I'm your host, BK, and I am going to be joined today by my lovely, beautiful friend, Nadia Ben Youssef. We are cross-promoting this show today, so you'll hear this show not only here on The Artivist Room, but also on The Activist File, which is a podcast of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Um, so I'm so honored today to be joined by my lovely comrade-in-arms, Miss Nadia Ben Youssef. Nadia, how are you? BK, I am so happy to to be here with you and to hear that intro and that voice. This has been such a long time coming to have this podcast and I'm so proud of you and um, really excited for the conversation today. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. And um, yeah, for wanting to do this cross promotion, this is my first cross promoted show, excited about that. Um, so yeah, give me, um, let, let my listeners, ah, let my listeners know what you all are doing over there at uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights. How's that been going for you? Oh, thanks, BK. Yeah, it's fun to cross-promote and to, to build out our, our podcast listeners and introduce folks both to your show and um, to our podcast, The Activist Files, at the Center for Constitutional Rights. And, you know, I, I joined the Center for Constitutional Rights two years ago, a little over two years ago, as their director of advocacy. Um, CCR, if folks don't know, is a 55-year-old uh, radical legal and advocacy organization that has been, since the beginning of our work, standing with social movements who are fighting against oppression, who are dismantling systems of racism, gender oppression, economic oppression, abusive state practices, um, fighting against American empire, um, standing shoulder to shoulder with freedom fighters um, in the US and around the world. And before coming to CCR, I was, um, I looked to this organization really as a, as a model of unapologetic, bold litigation, advocacy, communications work. Um, I came, you know, you and I met 
doing a lot of work around Palestine. And CCR was one of the only organizations in the United States that had a principled stance on Palestinian liberation and was connected to, the, to CCR through that work. And the sort of political coherence of this organization is what has been so extraordinary that um, what it means to stand on the side of justice means that you always know where you stand. Um, and that you're constantly um, challenging yourself to be as principled in struggle with people. Um, and, you know, yeah, so it's a constant, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful organization that is constantly evolving. Um, and part of that work is bringing on an advocacy arm of, um, advocacy has been central to CCR's work for many decades, but it's kind of reconfiguring what it means to be doing advocacy in this moment and pushing the work beyond kind of a reactive work, which is really what legal work often is, just resistance, like resisting the world that we have, pushing back and moving us into a posture where we are demanding the world that we want, affirming a positive vision of the world that we're fighting for and building towards, um, putting that out there, articulating that, and where it intersects with your work and the work that we've done together is that it's artists who chart that future. It's creatives who push our collective imagination towards that world that we are building that we have not yet seen. And so art has been, you know, an integral part of advocacy at CCR before I arrived and we're continuing to push that um, as a model and as a, as a strategy, but also, you know, I think it's, there is nothing like the aesthetic force in social change. And you know that, and this is why, you know, the artist room celebrates that and, um, and Donkey Saddle Projects celebrates that and is rooted in that. And so I think, you know, that's what's happening at CCR. I mean, there's so much I could say about this particular moment and, and why that's more necessary than, than ever. And, um, but maybe we can get into that a bit later. Definitely, definitely. Um, just want to congratulate you for, um, you know, kind of, I don't say upgrading to CCR, but, you know, getting into the space where you're now uh, working a part and being a part of that, that long legacy of folks who um, are not only prioritizing the arts through advocacy and the legal system, but also like making it a point to um, utilize artists in, in, in that way. And I don't think we've seen that in such a way in our movements. I mean, we've seen it in like small ways, like there are pockets of art, artists and advocacy that kind of, you know, push our movements forward. But I think it's really beautiful and very exciting to see uh, you be on that team and to, to know just, you know, the work that we've done together with uh, Donkey Saddle Projects and There is a Field and now knowing that you know, the uh, the experience that um, the experiences that we've had together in those spaces are now going to be over at CCR. I'm excited to see what can come out of that. Um, so I'm wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about, um, you know, what it's been like for you to kind of make that transition and some things that you might be excited about. I would say that I'm I'm excited about how art and advocacy link in the way that I always have been, um, in the way that you and I have built work together, um, not as something separate to the work of advocacy and let and legal work and um, and organizing broadly, 
for social change, but as necessary, as integral, as, you know, the cultural work that we do as movement is the life force of the work. You know, even, and what I would say is that the legal work at CCR, that's storytelling. That's storytelling work. You know, I think as movement lawyers, you know, what we're doing is we are trying to, at the highest level, have a disruptive public conversation about power and injustice and transformation through the courts. Um, advocacy work, so that's the political and cultural work that we might do um, to shift public policy and to shift public opinion on our issues, on our cases, on our clients, um, on the systems and structures of oppression in the world depends on stories. It, it depends on shattering master narratives. It depends on our ability as a movement to articulate the alternative world that we are creating to make that world, and I think you've said this many times, irresistible. You know, what is the duty of the advocate, the lawyer, um, the healer, the teacher in our movement? That's art. For me, it's artwork, right? It's, and if the, the more that we focus on, again, the power of the aesthetic, in our movement, um, the stronger we are. And I would say that that has been true throughout, throughout history of resistance. You know, um, I was thinking kind of in preparation for this podcast and the, the time, you know, that we're, we're sharing this with, with the world, um, you know, the, the national holiday that, that is called Independence Day. Um, I was thinking about Frederick Douglass and of course um, his brilliant speech, What to the Slave is the 4th of July. Frederick Douglass as an orator, as an artist, the aesthetic force of that speech was transformational, resonates has a has an echo into the present um, that forces us to recommit to changing our material reality. And art does that uniquely and it is to our detriment if we do not integrate it fully and, and even integrate, follow the leadership of creatives and of those who push our radical imaginations because you know, really what is possible in our world takes place first in the imaginary. We have to imagine it and then we build it and it's thanks to artists. And I say that in the broadest, you know, the broadest definition of what an artist is, um, you know, charts that path for us. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, Cause it's true. And I think meeting you was one of the very first times where I kind of understood that you know, artistry doesn't just have to lie with those who call themselves artists, right? Like it, it transcends what we, what we can kind of understand art to be. 
And I think, you know, bringing up Frederick Douglass in that way and to see him as an artist, an orator, somebody who, you know, can can use their radical imagination and imagine greater than the circumstances we find ourselves in. Um, that takes an artistic mind. It takes somebody who can look at their imagination and say, yeah, what what can we do that can be better than what we see right now? Um, so in that thought, because one of the very first times that I met you and we when we started working together, again, it was around um, the play project that we did uh, with Donkey Saddle Projects, um, There is a Field, which um, highlights a Palestinian family's uh, struggle for justice after um, you know witnessing the murder of um, their 17-year-old child during protest. Uh, the story resonates on so many levels for me as a Black woman um, who witnesses those types of injustices so often here in the United States. Um, you know, we question, we, we question, you know, what freedom really looks like in this, in this nation so much because at the end of the day, like Black lives aren't free, Indigenous lives aren't free, you know, our, our um, Latinx and immigrant brothers and sisters they don't, they don't get to see freedom. So really who, who is freedom? Who is Independence Day really for? Um, I digressed a little bit, but <laughs> the very first time we were in session together, uh, you taught a course around demystifying empire and it, it stayed with me all these years because it, it really, for me, encapsulated what's so hard about like going up against empire because it's so, it's made to be so mystical and unattainable. Um, so I just wanna um, ask you if you could kind of, you know, break down how we can demystify empire to, in today's world. Um, do you think about that or is there anything that you can speak to around what that looks like? Mm. Oh goodness, there's so much that came up in there. I love your question, what does freedom look like? Um, who is freedom for? Um, and as Fannie Lou Hamer would say, if it's not for all of us, then it's for none of us. Until all of us are free, none of us are free. You know, so um, I love that question. And I think empire is the antithesis of that. Empire is the antithesis of freedom. Empire is the structures and system that uphold supremacy. Um, that allow for subjugation. Empire is the lie of the hierarchy of human life. And empire, you know, it's, it's, you know, you and I do the session on the four eyes of oppression, you know, as we're trying to understand and to really take apart the, the elements of, of empire, you know, in ideology, in institution, um, how empire is expressed in our relationships, our interpersonal relationships with one another, how empire is internalized, you know, how, how we accept subjugation and exclusion, how we are complicit in subjugating and excluding others. So empire, you know, to dismantle empire, one is to see it as it is, right? I think the truth telling aspect of it is important. Can we create the contours so that we can understand, um, we can understand empire beyond the sort of the, the mythic and overwhelming presence of it? 
can we understand it? Um, and can we see ourselves within it? Can we understand how we are part of that project? The project of exclusion, of hierarchy, of subjugation, of oppression. You know, can we engage the empire within? Are we willing to do that? Um, you know, and then as we're dismantling it, this is where the artistry of abolition in all its, you know, manifestations across time help us, which is that as we're dismantling empire, what are we creating in its place? Um, and I think that effort of, of creation, um, of creating the alternative, imagining a decolonized, um, a decolonized world, imagining the end of empire requires us also to, to build the world that we are, the, to build the world that we want. And I think we do that in the smallest ways. And that's what's exciting too about the project of dismantling empire, as huge as it is, is that it can be done by all of us in a myriad ways. So we can be involved in the project of, of dismantling empire and creating beloved community um, in all the ways, um, in whatever way you know you are called to to do and to engage in this world. And I think to go back also to just the role of the artist, um, that sort of unlocking of what is possible um, is a is a crucial role for for artists to play. Um, but I don't know if that answers kind of the extent of the, you know, I think we did a lot of exercises because we wanted both people to embody, um, to understand and to, to locate empire in themselves and in the society. And we also encourage people to locate freedom, to locate hope, to locate alternatives in themselves and, um, and move us kind of as a collective towards that future. Yeah, no, I think he answered it uh, well. Thank you so much. Um, it also makes me think of like the the role that artists and, for instance, lawyers can play. <laughs> um, you know, we don't often see those two uh, entities collide. Um, so I'm curious, do you <laughs> do you have any thoughts around how um, how those two worlds can collide more effectively and when I when I ask that I mean like you know what are what are some ways that you know artists can kind of I guess inject themselves into into those spaces that may not often seem like you know those are spaces that are meant for the artists I know we you talked about earlier you talked earlier about lawyers being storytellers right so I'm wondering I'm curious if there are ways that you know as artists we can either kind of help those stories come to life more or we can kind of be in the service of, um, you know, being more al allied with folks who, who want to be on that side of uh, abolition with us and of demystifying empire and like unpacking the empire that, that has been ingrained in us. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this is our, the work that we did with There is a Field, BK. It was, it was, you know, in large part, a, a story about the limits of the law, 
in pursuing justice, right? So you have this um, teenage Palestinian kid who was murdered by Israeli authorities at a protest. Um, and, you know, there was an official commission of inquiry um, in Israel. There was opportunities for lawyers to gather tons of evidence to prove to the state that he was indeed murdered, to prove that the murder was unjustified, um, to use the system of oppression to try to um, to try to demand the rights of the oppressed, which itself is a you know the system is not designed for that, right? We know that um, the legal system is not you know is functioning perfectly as unjust as outcomes are, right? That those are what is what is possible in a legal system. So, you know, I think what the play did and what There is a Field did by, you know, um, taking that story of one family's struggle for justice in a legal system and putting it in a new venue, um, which is the venue of, of the artists and of the, you know, of the actors, of the playwright. Um, and what Jen Marlowe, the playwright did, you know, is in line with, um, I think the, you know, it's a documentary style play and what it, what it does is gives Palestinians and those who experience oppression, the permission to narrate their stories. This is Edward Said who, who talks about this, the permission to narrate and why moving from the object of, um, of inquiry, the, the object of discourse, the person who's most impacted becomes the subject, becomes the narrator of their own story. And in that, you take it out of the realm of the oppressor, so out of the realm of the law, and you put it in the realm of the artist, the, the realm of art and creativity. And um, there you create an alternative venue for justice. Right, where, so the story, which folks who understand how the law works in these systems, of course the family didn't get justice in the courts. You know, it's now 21 years later um, and there's still no justice for what happened to Asil Asle, the young, the young Palestinian who was killed. Um, and as you said, as a black woman in this country, as black people, who experience and understand that the law was not designed to protect the rights. And when, when it happens, you know, we saw earlier this year um, in the trial of Derek Chauvin, when it happens, it's an exception. It's an exception to the, to the rule of, of kind of perpetual injustice. Um, and then when it happens <laughs> to underscore that injustice is still gonna, you know, rear its ugly head. We, we see as this is happening, another murder is happening. So not only do we have to grapple with the little small semblance of maybe justice that we might get, then we also have to compound it with the fact that, oh, but we're we're going to continuously be terrorized and murdered. Um, so, yeah, I didn't yes. mean to interrupt you, but I just... You have to. Yeah. That's it, right? And And then how, if there is not an alternative venue for justice to engage in that system ends up legitimizing it mm. in some way, right? Like it's, so artists play a role of, you know, kind of 
taking the best of what is possible, uh, which is the storytelling, um, the best of what is possible in law, the, the conversation about power that you're trying to have, the disruptive force of taking a case like this um, and putting it in a venue where actual justice, actual accountability, actual healing is possible. You know, and I think that's what, you know, in terms of a partnership of artists with lawyers, lawyers as artists, you know, seeking out those opportunities to ensure that, you know, in, in our view, in our clients or those who are impacted or those whose story we're trying to tell through litigation have the best opportunity to not only own their story, but to shape its trajectory beyond the legal system, right? And as you said, it's, it's an exception to even get to court for systems, for, you know, when you're challenging systems of um, systemic oppression, systemic anti-Black racism, when you're trying to fight, you know, structures of, of capitalism, when you're trying to fight, you know, systems of oppression, um, of gender oppression, when you're trying to fight, you know, like, it's exceptional even to get to court uh, on some level, right? Um, and so it's critical that those stories have other platforms and, um, and then are able to do the work in the way that does justice to um, the story itself. Thank you for saying that. That's such a beautiful point. Um, so I'm gonna switch gears just a little bit because something that you said made me think about, you know, our current circumstance, um, you know, in the wake of a, in the aftermath of a Trump presidency <laughs> and uh, in the aftermath of last summer's events uh, with the uprising around George Floyd and then the insurrection at the Capitol at the beginning of this year. Um, you know, you would think, <laughs> logically, you would think that, you know, legislation being passed in the wake of all of those things would kind of move us in a direction that would look like we're trying to change and trying to grow and adapt and learn from those moments, right? But as, as we begin to see sweeping legislation being proposed and passed that is furthering uh, limitations on our voting rights and it's furthering um, limitations on our access and ability to protest, I'm wondering and I'm curious about how how do you understand what we can be doing to combat all of these really regressive policies that are starting to come out of our um of this system? What do you think we can mm -hmm. be doing to uh to further push the notion that, you know, more folks need to be paying attention to what's happening? at the legislative level? And what do you think um, like your fellow law community can be doing to help us as artists really start to stand up in the wake of these um, legislative policies? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a disheartening <laughs> at best time, right? And an exhausting time. I think uh, folks uh, are so tired are so tired because it's an onslaught really it's a it's these are waves of racist discriminatory deadly legislation you know i know that you and your comrades in florida are really pushing back against policies that are criminalizing protests and i would say 
you know, I, it's not to, it's not to put a positive spin on, on what is, um, you know, the manifestation and the, and the entrenchment of oppression. But I will say that the empire is trembling to go back to, to what we were talking about before. And I think, you know, you raised, um, you raised the uprisings of last summer um, in your question. And my mind was flooded with images, BK, like the aesthetic power of a movement rising up for those in power that's a threat that's a threat it is a recognition amongst all of us that we are the multitude and so the powerful are you know using the tools that they have the tools that they have designed the tools that protect them um, the tools that they have control over, right? We've talked a lot about the law as a tool of the powerful. You know, who owns it? Who writes it? Um, what are they protecting? And so they're using that, right? They're, they're trying as fast as they can, as, um, as best as they can to combat the power of the people. And we know, and they know, that that power is so limited when compared to what community, what movements, particularly movements with a vision can do and can achieve. Now, you know, as you had also mentioned, you know, we were reeling from a Trump presidency. That was also a movement, you know, with a vision. I was in conversation with one of our comrades, um, Ashley Woodard Henderson on our podcast, The Activist Files a few, few months ago. And that's, you know, as she was kind of describing the, you know, the both the kind of the racist, regressive, um, proto-fascist uh, Trump regime and administration, and um, and the the world view that he represents is a movement with a vision, <laughs> a vision of um, annihilation of the other, a vision of white supremacy nonetheless a vision, right? And I think the counter vision, the counter public um, that we are a part of, that we are struggling with um, is tasked with setting that alternative vision. And I think lawyers and artists, um, creatives and organizers, healers, parents, <laughs> you know, like this collective is obligated to, to make clear that that alternative vision and then you know there's different ways there's different strategies about how we chip away um, at the power of oppression how we engage in it you know that there's there's ways to disrupt power and there are ways to redistribute power and I think we just have to kind of put together our the best of our creative abilities and of our skills to seek out the best tactics and, and the multitude of tactics that we can, um, we can employ against these, these forces. Um, and we have, you know, we, we have what we need. We have everything that we need. Um, and I think 
part of that is acknowledging it to ourselves and to each other um, and giving people the resources um, that they need to first survive, you know, for to first survive and then to employ their gifts and their joys in the service of our collective liberation. So being that we are still in the wake of this very global pandemic moment, um, I'm curious to see if you've thought about what the implication of the pandemic means for us moving forward. A lot of people have suffered a lot of loss, um, emotional losses, like physical bodies of people that they've lost. People have lost their businesses, their homes. Um, I'm wondering uh, from a legal standpoint in your lawyer mind, <laughs> how do you think uh, the moment that we are moving through with the with this pandemic is gonna shift the way that folks are now seeing themselves in um in our movements but then also in 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 our in our like in our legal communities and um you know folks folks in in your field like how do you think um this will shift the way that they think about the impact of their work great question um and for full disclosure i am a, a lawyer i'm trained as a lawyer you know <laughs> i don't know that i would um, I've been doing advocacy work for all of my career in in law. Um, so outside of outside of the law, in part because you know the the law was not my joy, and there were people who were who it was their joy, and they were doing um, incredible legal work, um, including my colleagues at CCR. So shout out to the lawyers um, and those of us who studied it and and didn't continue necessarily. But right. I would say that for all of us. <laughs> You know, the pandemic has, um, I hope, PK, and I like, I really hope that the pandemic transforms us. I, if we do not emerge clearer, more compassionate, better from the devastation of this experience, the tremendous loss that you said, I mean, it's hard to imagine, a, it's hard to imagine a more profound test of humanity, you know, than, um, than this, this kind of devastation, you know, and, and so, I think what it requires is, and what it has uncovered and made impossible to ignore is the root cause of so much suffering, so much unnecessary suffering. Um, so many people died, BK, that didn't have to die. You know, and that's the case for so many of the interlocking pandemics that we are confronted with, pandemic of a health crisis, the pandemic of anti-Black racism, the pandemic of capitalism, the pandemic of empire, uh, the pandemic of white supremacy has caused so many people to die. We've lost so much, we've lost so much potential and possibility. Um, we've lost so much, you know, so much of our humanity. 
And the root causes of those of that loss has to be our target. You know, I think this in the aftermath of the pandemic, addressing symptoms of the problem is no longer sufficient. It has never been. And you and I know that our comrades know that. But it, it's we don't have time. We cannot. We cannot be addressing the symptoms when we know so clearly what the problems are. So what I need in this moment and what we need to do is be very laser focused on the root causes, asking the right questions, addressing the root causes, and creating solutions that are sufficient. Half measures are not enough. We have to be willing to articulate the horizon that we are moving towards. So even if we do have to take incremental steps towards that, sure, but we're not gonna be taking two steps back. <laughs> you can't, we can't, it has to be continually forward towards the horizon of freedom, towards the horizon of reparations, towards the horizon of abolition. And that's where we're moving, you know? So I think the moment requires lawyers and others to be very serious about a complete recalibration of our national and global priorities um, it has to confront the legacies of empire, colonialism, oppression, anti-Black racism, um, anti-indigeneity. We have to confront the, the pillars of our um, unjust society and all be in the service of, of reconfiguring, transforming that society. That's the work now. Anything less is an injustice. So as we've been having this conversation, um, Audre Lorde's words have been coming to me. She said that you can't, you, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. So I, I completely understand that. And in that regard, I completely believe in the power of the people. So, um, you know, I really appreciate the perspective that you you brought today. And um, yeah, the, the work that you're doing and continue to do, like I, I'm, I'm, I totally admire you as a person and as a lawyer and a fierce freedom fighter. So, um, you know, just thank you for all of your words and wisdom. Um, I'm going to let you go in a second, but I have two final questions <laughs> that right, I want to ask you. <laughs> well, actually, no, it's just one final question, but I like to do this as my ending question. <laughs> but um, as the artist that you are, the activist, the lawyer, the artist, the beautiful person. If you could talk to anyone in your room, be it, be they living or passed on, who would you talk to and what would you want to speak with them about? Mm. What a great question, BK. I think I'll, in part because, um, you know, in my room, I, I have a, a photo of my, my grandfather. So I think I, I bring my ancestors and elders into this work, um, continue their work. And my grandfather, Salah bin Yusuf, was a, a freedom fighter, a revolutionary, third world, anti-colonial um, 
Tunisian dreamer. Um, he was involved in the anti-colonial struggle against France. He was a pan-Arab, pan-African um, organizer and political leader who I don't know would have defined himself as an artist, but believed so strongly in a transformed world and knew that that world was possible. And I think I would want to have that conversation with him about building the world that you have not yet seen and the lessons that he drew particularly in collective struggle and the, the transition that he made, you know, to, and the evolution that he went through in his own journey to understand that fundamental truth that we cannot get free alone and that our power is in, you know, building the world that we want together. Um, and I think I would have loved, he was assassinated in 1961 when my dad was 10, and in part because he represented that threat to empire. You know, because it was a collective struggle for freedom. And, you know, he and revolutionaries like him in that era and that persists today um, are artists and they are filled with the possibility of a complete transformation of the world. Like in each of these artists that you have spoken to, that we know that we descend from, uh, whose legacies we, we build upon, us, you and I, like in our being, hold the promise of a world transformed and the possibility of a world transformed. And, you know, I think I, you know, that, what was he thinking? What was he thinking in pursuit of that world? How did he recognize it in himself and in his comrades? How did he build it? Um, you know, and, and I think the sort of intergenerational questions and stories are also our key, you know, it's that's, there's also so much lesson and learning in that. And so um, we're part of something bigger. We're part of a legacy. And I think I would love to be grounded in, in that. Um, and that's who I would want in my room. Wow, such a powerful room to be in. Thank you so much, Nigeria. Um, big up to your grandfather and all the work that he did. Um, and thank you for sharing that. Um, so 
I'm going to let you go uh, as we close mm, out. Okay. Please let our listeners know what you all are doing over at CCR. How can they follow the work um, and get plugged in with everything uh, that you all are building and continuing to build? Thanks, BK. What a pleasure it was to be with you. And yes, uh, follow us. Um, join our work. You can you can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, um, on Twitter. Our website is ccrjustice.org. You can plug into events. You can join our community um, and and build this world together. We we're excited also to partner. Um, if you are an artist, if you are a law student, if you are um, interested in getting involved in this work in in whatever way, uh, we welcome you and. Um, are excited are excited to build thanks so much for having us no problem and similarly to your listeners my name is bk Uh, i'm the podcast host for the artivist room it is a podcast of donkey style projects we are a ragtag group of really dope artists who are trying to build a better world and better imaginations for our young people, for our organizers, and for the artists that we are in community with today. If you would like to learn more about the work that we're doing, go over to our website at donkeystyle.org. If you want to know more about the show, uh, you can follow us on all of the socials at The Artivist's Room. And I look forward to hearing from you all. Thank you all so much for um, allowing us to share space and for listening and for wanting to fight for justice in the ways that you all do. I'm completely inspired by y'all's work and um, I hope we can do this again. Thank you. Me too. Thanks, BK. Want to give so much love to CCR and Nadia for joining us in the room this week. This is our first collaborative episode, so I hope that those that listen to CCR's podcast find something that they like over here in the Artivist Room and vice versa. Thank you so much for giving us a listen. Please be sure to check out season one and stay tuned in with us here in the Artivist Room. Go check out the Center for Constitutional Rights on their website at ccrjustice.org and make sure to follow them on all social media platforms. You can find them on Facebook and on LinkedIn at Center for Constitutional Rights, on IG at CCR Justice, on Twitter at The CCR, and lastly on YouTube at CCR Media. always thank you so much for joining us i'd love to hear what you thought of the show let me know by sending us a dm on ig or twitter or facebook at the artivist room or simply sending us an email at the artivist room at gmail.com thanks for listening and until next time be well and stay safe